Hello, everyone. Welcome to Morals and Markets. Uh, glad to see everyone here tonight. Just as a reminder, before we get started, uh, please keep yourself muted while Dr. Salzman is giving his opening remarks so we don't have any background noise breaking up the talk. Uh, also, you can utilize the chat at the bottom of the screen to make comments or ask questions about specific parts of Dr. Salzman's talk. Uh, you can also utilize the reactions button on the bottom right hand to uh, click the raise hand symbol if you'd like to get in line for the Q&A uh, during Dr. Salzman's remarks. And uh, last but not least, I'm going to post an abstract for tonight's meeting in the chat, including sources and supplementary readings that Richard's put together for tonight's meeting. Uh, with that being said, uh, tonight we'll be discussing capitalism. Uh, University Seminar. And with that, I hand things off to you, Richard. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, I'm going to, as I normally do, this is a 90-minute slot, but I'm going to spend the first 20, maybe at most 25 minutes uh, with commentary. Uh, some of this is made available through audio and Spotify and elsewhere for Morals and Markets, so it's for the audio audience as well. But I'm glad to see some faces here tonight. Uh, what I intend to do tonight is have you feel like you're a student at Duke University showing up day one to my university seminar, which is titled Capitalism For and Against. Now, just for, to read into the record, the description I gave for tonight's version of Morals and Markets, which we do monthly, by the way, here's how I wrote it up. Social science faculty at top-tier American universities typically lean leftward ideologically and thus don't present a case for capitalism. For the past six years at Duke, I've conducted a popular seminar for first-year students, which assesses both the pros and cons of capitalism. And in this session, this Morals and Markets tonight, I'll recount the seminar's origins. I'll share the syllabus with you. I'll screen share it. We'll review some of the reading, most of the readings. And then I'm going to convey some of these student reactions. Now, just to be clear, Seminars at Duke, and I think this is true at most universities, a seminar specifically is defined as a small group of students, no more than 18 at Duke. So it's capped out at 18. And it's in a, you know, a nice conference room with a big conference table and the students are sitting around the table and I orchestrate the discussion. I obviously give them the readings and structure the material, but it's not me uh, lecturing at them. That's the nature of a seminar. I do now. I do do lectures where I'll stand up on a stage and I'll use PowerPoint, and I'm pretty much lecturing at them. Those are usually 50, 60, 70 students. So I just want to get you a, give you a feel of what the what the room looks like, so to speak. Now background as well. I've taught at Duke now, going on I think it's it's almost 13 years now. So I've been teaching at Duke since 2010. I'm in the PPD program, which is stands for philosophy politics, and economics. It's an interdisciplinary program. Uh, I put this together myself in 2019. I was asked by someone in the department, they knew my interest, they knew my background, whether I'd be willing to put together a new seminar never before taught at Duke. And we tossed around some ideas. I came up with this idea. They liked the idea. It did have to get approved by a curriculum committee at Duke. Uh, I had to make a case for it. I had to show them a, a mock uh, setup syllabus, and it was approved. So, so the other thing to remember as you're watching this, this is not a syllabus I took over from somebody else. It's something I started from scratch. 
now another point which might be of interest to you uh i didn't do this when i put my course together but uh a couple a couple of years ago i went around the internet looking for capitalism syllabi and uh i don't have to tell you how bad they are they're just terrible they're either all anti-capitalist or they just use the course to uh, grind other axes. So I think this is really unique. I'm actually hoping that the more I teach this and I do adjust it over time, the more this can become a model for teaching capitalism uh, in other universities. Now, uh, that's as to background. I think that's pretty much all I wanted to give you on, on background. Now, what I thought I would do is so we did test this to make sure it works to share the syllabus, and I'll start walking through the syllabus. Now, Scott, can you confirm for me that it's visible? Okay, Scott says yes. Now, uh, this syllabus is, uh, I don't know, maybe six or seven pages long, not too long, but I just wanted to walk through it. So now let's kind of pretend that you're a student in the class and I say, welcome to this seminar. Uh, I was talking to David Kelly offline, and and sometimes the student, sometimes the students will file in, and the professor will just kind of routinely go through the syllabus. Here's the syllabus. Here's what you have to do. Here's the grading, which can be a little routine. So on some occasions, I've come in, and in order to shock them a little bit, I just come in. I introduce myself, but I, I launch into a five minute tirade against capitalism. I sound like a Marxist or a Maoist. I bring up all the arguments about alienation and expro expropriation and crises and exploiting the worker. And, and, and after about four or five minutes, I just stop. And a pregnant pause, I wait. And then I launch into a five-minute defense of cap. Capitalism is wonderful. Capitalism is a cornucopia of prosperity. It gives me liberty. It gives me freedom to choose. And, and, and the students, by this time, their eyes are bugging out, like, what the hell is happening here? Uh, because I'm kind of role-playing. But I'm giving them summary arguments that, of course, we're going to be covering in the seminar. But the idea of someone standing up and just giving five minutes on each for and against is is uh, dramatic. It can be very dramatic and very arresting. I've tried other opening techniques, but that one I've tried before and it's worked uh, pretty well. Now, you could see I'm actually in the middle of this right now. I taught the session today uh, from this course. So I teach it on Tuesdays. This is a two and a half hour seminar, by the way. So it, it goes for two and a half hours once a week. So I do give them a break in between. I give them a 15 minute break in between, uh, you know, halfway through. Uh, but but it gives you the sense of how intense you have to be, uh, you know, 18 people in a room discussing a set of ideas for two and a half hours. It can be very intense. Now, let me read the description of the course again for those on the audio. Right up front, description, Capitalism is a formidable and durable social system worthy of scientific objective study. Only these three centuries old, it has both proponents and opponents, each wielding strong and weak arguments. In this seminar, we investigate, analyze, and debate the nature of capitalism and assess the validity or not of the various pro-con claims. Our discussions will be informed not only by history, but by competing theories in ethics, politics, and economics. The main proponents to be examined are conservatives, libertarians, and objectivists. The main opponents to be examined are socialists, environmentalists, and feminists. We'll also assess the pros and cons pertinent to select topics and controversies relating to capitalism. 
Now, I want to also read, I'm not going to read every sentence in this syllabus, but I also want to read something about eligibility and free and fair speech. The free and fair speech part, uh, my colleagues and uh, others at Duke have begun to put in from the standpoint of students who are easily triggered and maybe overly sensitive. But first, let me read the eligibility part. The seminar is for first-year students only. So now get this, when you go through the syllabus, and see the readings, imagine to yourself, this is a 17-year-old. And my experience has been the intelligence level of these students is really quite high. The fact that they can absorb and analyze the material I'm about to show you will surprise you. Now, I'm not sure it's unique to Duke. I'm sure it's this is available elsewhere. But there's a serious sneer to a student coming in, and, and, it's, and freshmen especially. A freshman in a seminar is really exposing themselves in a way, because when you're in a seminar, you can't hide. You can't hide in the back room of a big, uh, you know, auditorium and sleep through class. You're you're at the table. Everyone's facing each other, and you really have to be prepared. Anyway, to continue, the seminars for first year students only who are intellectually curious about the social sciences. It's an excellent introduction to key concepts and principles in philosophy, politics, and economics. You can see that PP and either I'm pitching my program. No participant is required to be pro-capitalist, anti-capitalist, or undecided. And no actual leanings enjoy a privilege or suffer a prejudice. In short, all views are welcomed. The main requirement is objectivity. Now, free and fair speech section. The seminar examines the best and worst arguments for and against controversial claims. Students may hear and debate unconventional views. <laughs> Not feelings, but ideas, reasons, and arguments are requisite and are the basis of grading. You'll face challenges to your own arguments, so express them as clearly as possible and try to meet and refute objections decisively. Arguments and writings will help you earn a top grade if they're supported objectively, meaning with facts, evidence, and logic, and if they're defended persuasively. All right, so you see the heavy emphasis here on on rationality, objectivity, evidence, don't go by feelings. Uh, that's pretty clear up top. Now I'm going to skip over other things like attendance. The honor code obviously has to be followed. Required books. Now look at the required books. The Communist Manifesto. Now that's available mostly online, but some of them will go get the paper version. Uh, their reaction, by the way, to this is really quite remarkable because some of them worry that this is a 600-page book. And if you know... It's, a, it's actually a pamphlet. It's a very brief and actually fun to read pamphlet. Now, they also have to buy uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal uh, by Ayn Rand. Uh, and the third one, a more recent book, Capitalism for Realists, is really a very good book and very balanced. And Rutar uh, does an excellent job. So I give them various, you'll see through the syllabus, I give them various chapters excerpted from that. Now, notice how the next section is long-term historical data. This is not a heavily quantitative or statistical course, but I really encourage them to go to this link, and I encourage anyone listening tonight, actually. Ourworldindata.org is a fabulous place to go and look for all sorts of data, not just on economics, on politics, on, on human development and things like that. And I created myself uh, something called Exhibits of Capitalist Development, taken mostly from that database, you know, with nice looking graphs and charts and things like that. I won't show them to you tonight, but when you when you see on the syllabus, 
that green bracketed thing called Sakai. Sakai is just the name of the online service at Duke where the students can go on and access and retrieve readings and the syllabus and exhibits and things like that. Now notice the grading, um, course evaluation, 15% of it is them speaking up in class in the debate. Uh, so that's a fairly big chunk. They also have 15% uh, goes to five quizzes online. So you'll see, as I show you the syllabus, after we've gone through a certain amount of material, I'll give them a quiz. It's mostly multiple choice, but it definitely makes them keep up on the readings. Now, the most interesting, I think, part of this is the fourth requirement. Notice what it says, also 15% of the grade. Short, 300 words or so, written comments per section of the syllabus. Now, that's delivered online before we meet. So this encourages them to read the material before we meet. And these comments are all available to each other. They can all see each other's comments. And they're encouraged to either pick a particular reading or take a particular concept in the readings that we're about to discuss and comment on them and opine on them. And they'll say things like, you know, I liked this reading because it made this point, or I see that Marx and Keynes differ on this point and not, uh, or I don't understand this point. I hope this can be raised in class. It's a really good way for me to, and I read these before I go into class. So it's a really good way for me to read how the students are grasping the material, what they're confused about. And um, it also is the basis for me, they get more prepared to talk in class because they've written down something in ahead, ahead of time. The midterm exam is 20%, that actually is next week. Then they have to write a final paper. In freshman seminar, in all seminars actually at Duke, instead of a final exam, notice they do have a midterm exam, instead of a final exam, they write a paper. And 15 to 20 pages for a freshman is a lot, depending, especially if they're a STEM student. It's very difficult. They're not used to writing long papers. It has to be about capitalism. It has to be something related to the syllabus. It can't be too off-roading. And I get all sorts of fascinating um, essays uh, on Castle for and against, follow, mostly following the syllabus, 15 to 20 pages. They, they're free to tell me ahead of time what they're thinking of, send me an outline so I can coach them along the way. And uh, so if you think about it by now, this, by the way, has been sold out six years in a row. So six times 18 is what, more than 100. I have had more than 100 capitalism papers from Duke students in six years, and they're just fascinating. By the way, the average grade in this seminar is 90. You see the gradings, you see the grading key there. Uh, I very rarely have had a case where the median grade is in, into the low Bs and stuff. And there are many students, uh, not I shouldn't say many, I would say 15 to 20% are up in the A-plus range, really, really top-notch performers. All right, let me show you the sections now. I have about a dozen, maybe 13. Section one, notice what it starts with, definitions and attitudes. So this one just is readings in how the heck is it defined? How the heck is capitalism defined? I go straight to the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, the next one from Gallup, there's a poll of what Americans and professors think of capitalism. I have a router chapter on critics and defenders. That's the opening. And notice now the mix and what they sound like. Something from The Case for Socialism by Moss, 2010. Why capitalism doesn't work. And then the next one, capitalism is working in the U.S. Perlstein, can capitalism survive? Now notice sometimes I'll just do excerpts. That's just an introduction. That's 12 pages. The last one in the opening section, a video actually of Ayn Rand 
defending capitalism. That's only about 10 minutes. It's from 1961. What's the point here? We're looking for foundations. We're looking for definitions. I'll, I'll often ask them before they get into this, what, what is capitalism? How do you define it? Some of them will say it's an economic system. Some of them will say it's more than that. Maybe it's a social system. Uh, so anyway, this, at this rate, they're, they're getting uh, a flavor of how to define the thing we're supposed to be debating and various perspectives uh, on it. All right, section two, I'm scrolling up. I hope you can see that. Section two, origins and development of capitalism. And again, a chapter from Rutar, historical origins. Now, in this case, I include a thing I wrote in 2018 on the etymology of capitalism, which they really like. The etymology of capitalism is the meaning of the word. Capital, capitalists, capitalism. I point out to them that any ism is a system, uh, whether it's socialism or environmentalism or anything like that, that now you're speaking systematically about something. But this one kind of interests them, and they also know for the first time they learn here that the word wasn't even introduced until 1850. So that's fairly recent. The origin of capitalism itself is usually dated in the seven, early 1700s, 1750. But the word itself it doesn't come up until 1850, and of course by a critic. It's by a critic of capitalism, a utopian socialist called Louis Blanc. Uh, now three uh, or four basically uh, encyclopedia entries. Now I did this because they're more uh, extensive in their discussion. And no, notice these can be pretty long. The Sombart piece is about 13 pages long. But notice also I do it in a chronological order. So Sombart, who was a socialist, by the way, has the entry on capitalism in the Encyclopedia of Social Sciences in 1930, right on the precipice of the Great Depression. So Sombart is interesting because he's not really speaking about capitalism has failed, the Great Depression has proved that. It's a view of capitalism just before the 1930s Depression. And, uh, and the 20s, of course, had been robust, the roaring 20s, things were working out great. Hal Brenner, 1987, an excerpt on capital. He's wrote also a socialist. These 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 dictionaries, encyclopedia people are just awful in the sense that they they basically call up socialists when they need an entry on capitalism. They can't seem to find any any capitalists. But I still I give it to the students anyway. And you'd be surprised. I have found that the Sombart and Hellbrenner entries are remarkably objective. Uh, they're not they're not so nasty that they lead entirely toward uh, dismissing capitalism. Now, the 1993 entry, if you know, Robert Hessen is a well-known uh, historian of capitalism and other things, economic historian, but also an objectivist. So here's the first time they get a survey of capitalism. It's only four pages, but it's very good from the Fortune Encyclopedia of Economics from Robert Hessen. And then Smith, just a capitalism entry from Wiley, more recent, 2017. Now, section three um, was not in the original uh, seminar. I, I only included this starting three years ago, and I'll tell you why. I found it very interesting. At this point, I would have just jumped into the Marxian critique, which comes next. But as I was teaching it the first three or four years, I found a lot of interest students had in what I call the psychology or the spirit of capitalism. In other words, this, they, they might call it the social, the cultural aspects of it, not political, not economic but rather the idea of how does it feel to be in a capitalist um, setting? 
And of course, there's a lots of arguments that it's awful, that it's anxiety ridden, uh, that it's terrible, that capitalism is alienating us and all this. So all those kind of things come up. But if you look at the readings I've given them, they're all over the place. The, the funniest one they read is by Hamilton called, uh, I picked the first name, but it's called Affluenza. And a book called Affluenza, When Too Much is Never Enough. The argument here is that capitalism makes us obsessed about buying stuff and buying stuff we don't need, almost to the point of it being a sickness. And so instead of influenza, affluenza, the affluence being a problem. And then Mises, though, Mises, Psychological Resentment Toward Capitalism, an excerpt from Anti-Capitalist Mentality. Berger, Capitalism and the Disorders of Modernity. Berger's interesting because he's a conservative. And we'll come to conservatism later, but Berger is basically complaining that capitalism is too fast-moving, too secular, too modern. But it's not a Marxist critique. It's a religious conservative critique. So it's the first time the students kind of get the idea, well, I, conservatives might be having a problem uh, with capitalism. Now, the next one is turned out to be very controversial. It's the one they talk about the most. It's from Edith Packer, who was herself an objectivist. And the essay is from 1984, The Psychological Requirements of a Free Society. This one is enormously controversial. The students will spend, you know, uh, half an hour arguing about it. She lays out five character traits. I won't go through them here, but five character traits that she said are kind of essential to a person feeling comfortable in a fast-moving, changing, a capitalist society where you have to take responsibility, self-responsibility. And, and I, I tell the students, you can take these five things that Packer has given us and you can flip it and say, well, if you lack these things, you're going to feel anxiety-ridden under capitalism, or you're going to want to pursue some other system that makes you feel more comfortable, makes you feel being taken care of, that kind of thing. The money-making personality by Rand is also in there. Eight Now, the, notice it's personality-driven. And if you remember that essay, she has Smith and Jones, two different kinds of young people, and their attitude toward making money versus taking money. The Buchanan piece. Now, Buchanan is a uh, Nobel Prize winner from 1986, an excellent economist. He passed away in 2013. But notice what his is. Afraid to be free. Dependency is to set a retum. This is an excellent essay. In 2005, Buchanan, who was pro-capitalist, was noticing that even though the Soviet Union had declined and even though capitalism supposedly won, people were still afraid to live under capitalism. So he himself was beginning to see that there's some kind of psychological problem here, that even if we solve the economics and politics of it, you're still going to get people resisting being in a capitalist setting. So that's a fascinating essay. The next one is by Tara Smith, also an objectivist. Money can buy happiness. That one includes a lot of things about friendship uh, that the students really love. This this essay is it has a lot of personal stuff in it, which is nice. It's also a long essay. There's about 13 pages. But this one by Smith, the students really like a lot. Now, the last one, Sandal is Harvard, a real critic of capitalism. He thinks that capitalism contaminates everything. So it, so it ends with, obviously, capitalism is terrible, capitalism, how markets crowd out our morals. It ends that section. So I, I hope you appreciate what that, that section is one of my favorites to teach. And, and again, it wasn't part of the seminar at all until, until about three years ago. Notice then they get a quiz. I tell what the quiz is on, sections one, two, and three. So that's a lot of material to get in a quiz. Next, now the setup of the next four 
go like this, the Marxian critique, and then the critique of the Marxian critique. And then if you, I'm pulling up further, the Keynesian critique, critique of the Keynesian critique. So see, the way I put this together was instead of having the first half of the seminar all pro-capitalism, I have the seminar toggling back and forth, not only within sections, uh, but between sections that you get a pro and con as you're going. I think this is much more effective than if we did it another way. Now, I'm going to go a little faster here because I want to get through all these sections, so I won't read through every reading. But you can see that section four, it's the Marxian critique, obviously the Marxian critique of capitalism. And the first thing I think you should notice is mostly I mostly go to Marx. I go to the horse's mouth. I don't want too many summaries or secondary sources of Marx. We get Marx one, two, three, four, five times, right? Between 1835 and 1875. And I, I try to pick those that most pertain to capitalism, you know, not the arcane economic stuff he does. And so this one about the, the book, the first one, by the way, Reflections of a Young Man on Choice of a Profession, almost nobody reads that. But it is a remarkable account of Marx telling young students that they should not pursue their self-interest in career choice, <laughs> that they should do what their parents say and what society wants of them. So it's a perfect setup for the marks you're going to get later in politics and economics where he's a collectivist and a socialist they do read the communist manifesto that's the third reading the 1865 reading is about how capital exploits labor the 1875 piece is interesting because it's going to be a setup for ayn rand critiquing this so the 1875 piece is the famous one from the gota program from each according to his ability to each according to his need that's the marxist principle of distribution. That leads to a lot of debate among the students. The Wilson piece is interesting because he be, eventually became president. That's Woodrow Wilson on socialism and democracy. But it's 1887 Wilson when he was still teaching, I think, at uh, Amherst. Then he went on to Princeton. That socialism essay is remarkable because he basically says nice things about socialism. Uh, so it finishes with Dworkin and then Rutar. Now, if you go to the next one, it's the critique of the Marxian critique. So I always tell students that these they're coupled these way this way. If you don't come out of this with a real understanding of what Marx is, you won't. You never will. So first, you get the Marxist argument, but then you get a critique of the Marxian argument, and so you're coming at it from two different angles. And you begin to learn whether the critics of Marx are treating him well or not. You know whether they're whether they're setting up straw men or steel men, whether they're getting to the point or not. The other thing I ask the students to look at is, are, are these largely economic arguments or political arguments or moral arguments? So the critique, Bombarvik, Mises, Hayek, Rand, Fare, Thompson, Brad Thompson at the end, why Marxism now by 2012, we have this long track record of what the communist regimes have done. Uh, that is a bare-knuckle, absolute decimation of Marxism, but from a philosophic political standpoint as well. The first one, Bombarvik, is him taking apart the labor theory of value. The, the Mises essay is saying socialism doesn't create anything, it's just destroyer. The Hayek one's interesting because he says, why do the worst type of people get to the top when you have socialism and collectivism? That one the students really like. The, the next one of Hayek is a suggestion that Nazism has something to do with socialism, and that's news to most of them. They Most of them do not know that Nazism is a contraction of national socialism. Now, notice the Rand piece. It's from Atlas Shrugged. It's from the 20th Century Motor Company story, 
And if you remember, she's specifically mocking and uh, the from each according to his ability principle. So that matches up perfectly with what we got from Marx the previous week when he was advocating that. The counter, I've had whole essays written by students on the Marxist approach and Rand's critique, an entire paper just on that. Uh, okay, another quiz. Now we go to Keynes. The Keynesian critique, notice this is also chronological. Marx is the 19th century, Keynes is the 20th century. And they get a little background here. They know, I tell them who Keynes was, how influential he was, how his ideas were incorporated into American textbooks, college textbooks through Paul Samuelson, 14 editions between 1948 and 1991. So they get a sense of how important this is. Now also notice all the Keynes readings. Again, straight Keynes first reading not not so many interpretations of Keynes, but Keynes himself, and mostly chronologically, starting in 1925 with his essay on Russia, where he lauds Russia. He applauds, shockingly, what Russia is doing, that they're exterminating the motive to make money. And this is a very interesting experiment, he thinks. And it really sets the students up for thinking, wow, this guy is not what they call the savior of capitalism, but he's really nasty and anti-capitalist. That also shows up in the end of Laissez-Faire, the 1926 uh, essay. Barnes in 1928 starts connecting Keynes to fascism, which is news to people, news to people, let alone to students. And we talk about that a little bit. Uh, so more on Keynes, and then an excerpt from Crotty, who is a Marxist professor who's issued this book recently saying Keynes is against capitalism. This is a very good book because it's countering the argument that Keynes came in to save capitalism. At this point, the students are starting to realize, hey, I've heard something about Keynes before. They might not have read Marx, but either in Econ 101 or in social sciences classes in high school, they heard something about Keynes and they know that he's dominant in current economics, or, you know, to a large degree. The critique of the Keynesian critique, notice, Rueff, Mises, this is starting post-war, 1947, 1948. Rand, I have the meaning of money from the money motive speech from Atlas, that's uh, Francisco. The reason I do that is Keynes has a lot of critiques of what he calls the money motive. He literally calls it the money motive, this idea of greed and how it uh, makes capitalism crash and burn. So again, counterposing Rand here against Keynes on the meaning of money, and money is not the root of all evil, but the root of good, is very powerful. This is the one I taught today. So I just finished teaching this section today. Skousen refers to the decline of Keynesian economics and the rise of supply-side economics in the 80s and 90s under Reagan. Brian Simpson is an objectivist out in San Diego, and he talks about why there would be renewed popularity of Keynes's ideas even after they've been discredited. So that's a good one. And then I include my own essay on why Say's Law is a counter to Keynesian economics. So they get a little economics in there, Say's Law. Again, a quiz. A quiz will come Friday. Next week, they'll have a midterm exam. And then spring recess. Now, three in a row, all arguments for capitalism, but of varying degrees of success. So section eight, conservatism. Again, I won't read through all these, but the usual suspects, Friedman, Hayek. Now, I put Rand in there, but Rand is critiquing conservatism. So the Rand, so the Rand essay is conservatism and obituary. Then Crystal, then Gilder, then Kirk and Opitz, they're all conservatives who are pro-capitalism, 
but they're saying, you know, look at Kirk Crystal. Only two cheers for capitalism, not three cheers. Uh, Gilder, the moral sources of capitalism. Gilder's trying to say capitalism is based on altruism and faith, not rationality, egoism, and reason. So the students here get the idea, well, they're, these group, these people are trying to defend capitalism, but they're very uncertain about it. Uh, and for the reasons you can imagine in this group, that it's um, secular and it's egoistic and it's individualistic. And a lot of conservatives and Christians don't like that. Uh, next, libertarianism. Boaz, Rothbard, Nozick, Nagel. Chartier. Now, here I picked ones that particularly had essays about capitalism, what they thought of capitalism. So notice Rothbard, capitalism versus statism. Uh, Nagel, uh, the Nozick one is very interesting from 98. Nozick, by the way, was a Harvard political philosopher, a libertarian. Why do intellectuals oppose capitalism? Um, Chartier and others. The, the, the essence of the libertarianism one is that many of them lean toward anarchy and believe that all states are necessarily misbehaving. So the students get this idea of, wow, there seems to be an argument for capitalism which says it only works when there's no state. And many of them are very suspicious of that argument, but many of them are surprised as well that the libertarians aren't for, and some of them are, as you know, constitutionally limited government, or they just have this non-aggression principle. They don't have any deeper philosophy underlying it. And that's what Nagel argues. If you look, 1975, Nagel, libertarianism without foundations. That critique was very powerful. Nagel basically said, libertarians are just saying, be pro-liberty, but they have no ethical, epistemological, other foundations. Okay. And then objectivism. Um, Rand, Peacock, Kelly, there you are, David. Objectivism, an entry in the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism, and then Tara Smith, some excerpts from her book on moral rights and political freedom. Now, notice there's uh, just excerpts from Capitalism, the Non-Ideal, but there are a lot of them. There's chapters one through nine, and then 16 and 18, and they also have to read Man's Rights and the Nature of Government. Now, notice the Peacock one from Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, is just chapter 11. So they don't get the full context of what's in Opar. That would take too long. But that's a very good chapter, and it's a long one, too. That chapter is about, what, 34 pages or so. So it's just the chapter on capitalism in Peacock. Um, sometimes the reaction to this one is, well, isn't objectivism just like libertarianism? Why are we reading objectivism? It sounds a lot like libertarianism. And what I do for these three is I basically say, if in the name, I hadn't remember, in the name, conservatism is trying to conserve something, but it doesn't have the idea in its name. What is it actually conserving? Maybe it's only conserving the advances made by the other side over the last 50 years, in which case it's a moving target. Libertarianism, I tell them, you know, liberty is in the name. So they're more ideologically branded, if you will, than the conservative is. But they're also, you know, emphasizing liberty with a, um, uh, a cacophony of different underlying tributaries. When I get to objectivism, I say, you know, it does have a capitalist argument, but the root of it is objectivity. So here I bring back the idea that it's well-named, that its specific brand is objectivity, but objectivity in the purpose of the seminar for defending capitalism. So that's helpful uh, to them. 
Okay, the last filling this out now, section uh, 11 is religion. This is another section I did not have in the first three or four years. It came up so often among students, I assume mo mo mostly because they were either religious or conservative, and they're very interested in whether religion is uh, generally pro-capitalism or not. Now, in this particular case, I felt the need to try the three main religions. So this isn't these aren't essays just about Christianity or, say, Catholicism and religion. If you notice, it has Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So the last one is, is titled, Is Islam Compatible with Capitalism? Uh, it also has the famous argument from Max Weber that the Protestant work ethic is central to capitalism. Uh, that's obviously religion and capitalism. Uh, Muller's essay is very good, thinking about the Jews and capitalism. Um, I have an essay in there called Holy Scripture and the Welfare State from my book. That chapter shows that many of the dicta and many of the principles in the Bible support the welfare state. And to the extent the welfare state is not capitalist, there's a kind of tension there for someone saying capitalism is held up by religion. Environmentalism comes next. Sometimes the students are surprised to have this categorized as anti-capitalist. But uh, we talk about that. We talk about the readings. These readings, if you notice, are a mix of pro and con. Um, capitalism and ecology by Foster is definitely capitalism sucks. Klein, this changes everything. Capitalism versus the climate, that is capitalism sucks. But Epstein, uh, Alex Epstein, an objectivist, and Schellenberger, and Salzman, I have the eight stages, are um, pro, and Schwartz, Peter Schwartz, the philosophy of privation. You see that it's roughly half of those are environmentalism is anti-capitalist, and the other ones, capitalism is against the environment. And notice the last one, very uh, telling, uh, kill capitalism before it kills us. <laughs> um, by the way, when I first put this together, and sometimes the students react this, when I first put this together and, and submitted it to the curriculum committee, someone jokingly wrote back and said, what do you mean for? There's capitalism for and against, and they jokingly said, what do you mean for? We're not used to teaching anything for. But the challenge in this, uh, the challenge in this syllabus was to put in as much for and as much against as possible. Um, ending with feminism, racism, and ethnicity. Now, this has become somewhat of a grab bag. I'm not entirely happy with this, but it ends with that. Is there a feminist argument against capitalism? Yes, most feminists tend to be against capitalism. The question is why? Uh, is capitalism good for women? What about women and children? So all those kind of things. Is capitalism racist? Or does it expunge racism? Does it care only about the color of money? Uh, what is the relationship between the Southern agrarian feudal South in America and the Northern, uh, you know, industrial, more capitalist North? That's a very controversial stuff. The Cud essay from 2015 is very good. Cud was, I think, at BC. She still might be Ann Cud. Is capitalism good for women? That essay is unbelievably good. So if you want to look that one up, that's a good one. Schwartz is here again for gender tribalism. Rand is in here talking about women's liberation. Rand is in here also on racism. So this one I do confess to being leaning in the direction of more arguments that capitalism uh, is good on all these issues. 
And Reisman is in there as well. He's an economist. Uh, Kendi, who is very popular now, is obviously thinks capitalism is inherently racist. So it actually ends with Kendi on, on the negative side. And that first one from Pukes is capitalism is terrible for all sorts of things. Uh, all three of them, actually, feminism, racism, and ethnicity. Then there's a student paper, and that's it. Now, I wanted to just show you one more thing, and then I'll open it up to questions. All throughout this, I'm going to switch here, and I hope you can see that. Can you see that? I just switched. Scott. Yeah, it's small text. But I'll I try to make it. Let me try to make it bigger. See if I can make it bigger. That bigger, kind of? Yeah. Set to, okay. Um, this uh, taxonomy, I call it. Notice how it's set up. It's got four columns. And when they first get this, it's a blank. This is when this course is done. But uh, in the beginning, they get a blank. Now, notice what the columns say. What is capitalism? Then the next one, is it practical? Then the next one, is it moral? Then the third one, is it sustainable? And on the left, you have the, the course sections we went through. Socialism, Keynesianism, conservatism, libertarianism, objectivism, environment. You get the idea of what's missing and the religion one's missing. They're asked to fill in the answers to these questions as they go. And one thing builds on another and they're, you know, they're supposed to, you know, and this is a fairly limited uh, wording. You can't go on and on about it. You have to get to the essentials. Um, and I'm trying to get them to think in terms of the relationship between these. Put it this way, if you look under objectivism, it basically says capital, I'm wording it now, I'm just abbreviating it. Capitalism is sustainable because it's moral, but in objectivism, it's moral because it's egoistic. And then it would be practical, and that's why it's sustainable. But also her definition, it's a system of liberty, a social system, no, not just an economic system. Now, what would the what would you guess the socialist Marxist argument would be? Capitalism is not sustainable, right? It's going to face a revolution from the workers. Keynesianism will say something like, well, capitalism tends to go into a ditch every once in a while because of recessions and financial crises. But if you implement Keynesian prescriptions, you know, it might survive. Uh, if you go down to environmentalism, it'll say it won't survive because it's eating up the planet or burning up the planet. So I, I've just found that this, and of course you have to have a definition. The def Look at the Marxist definition. Capitalism, a private property system where the few capitalists and owners exploit the many laborers and non-owners. That is obviously a very different definition than Ayn Rand would give. But I have found this is very helpful because... Uh, it, it helps them organize their thoughts about these, you know, eight or seven or eight different groups and what they're answering on these questions and the fact that the questions are interrelated, that the morality, practicality, and sustainability of a system, they're going to be interrelated depending on their views. The other thing this um, matrix does for them is it helps them write a paper. I tell them to use the matrix and I'll say, for example, you could write a paper going vertically comparing what capitalism is defined as, you know, by the pro-capitalists versus the anti-capitalists. In other words, are they biasing their discussion by their definitions? Uh, another way to do it would be go horizontally. Just take, say, Keynes and say, okay, I'm going to write a paper on whether Keynes thinks it's moral 
or practical and whether that had, has anything to do with his view of whether it's sustainable or not. And of course, you see what I mean? So you can go vertically or horizontally. They, that's not the only way to do it. But and and it immediately make, becomes clear to them that there are there are a number of possible final papers in here uh, based on what we've reviewed. So it, it's a kind of a busy exhibit. Uh, but they're doing it gradually. This is not thrown at them all at once. Every section that's finished, they have to submit their little descriptions of what they think um, the critique or the support is saying on these four columns. So that's a lot. And I'll stop. I don't know if I should stop screen sharing, Scott, so we don't yeah. look yeah. at this. That's... I'll stop the sharing if that's okay. And, and we can discuss and take questions. I went way longer than I should have probably 40 minutes or so, but we have at least 45 minutes. Um, that's it. And any comments or questions or things? Yeah, that just raise have? your hand. I've got a few. I mean, I, that sounds like an amazing amount of reading and just work and the length of the paper. And it, so this is a, I mean, are people, are, are some kids dropping it before the ad drop or? Um... <laughs> well, the, the answer to that is yes but it still ends up being full. So some come in and some go out. Uh, but yes, I, I would say, you know, if you get 20 show up after a couple of weeks, two or three might drop, but then two or three come in. Uh, okay. So that is, yes, that is probably a filter. The other thing that happens is even the ones that stay, uh, there are they'll get worried as they go into it about whether they can keep up or not. And uh, in that regard, I, I spend some time with the ones who are most worried talking about studying skills and and reading for comprehension and quickly. Um, it's not really a, a course in that, but sometimes really smart students will come in and they're so smart, they kind of have lazy uh, study habits or reading habits. Or they might be STEM, STEM meaning, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. They, so they're not used to reading large quantities of material. But that's how I handle it, Scott. I uh, summarize things pretty well in the seminar. I point to parts where they really should be focused. And the key thing is, I shockingly tell them, you realize you do not have to read every sentence of every uh, uh, assignment. And they say, you don't? And, I, and, and then they'll say, well, okay, which one should I not read? <laughs> but, but that's their obligation to kind of figure that out, to be able to take, a say, a 20-page essay and get the essence of it either by note taking or some other means. But yes, it's a lot of reading. Yeah, it's uh it's great that there's so much interest in it. Uh let's go to Mitchell. I've got some other questions about, you know, capitalism as well, but go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Um yeah, so it's good to see you, Doc. It's great to see you again. This is a former a former Duke student, if you if we can admit that, Mitchell. Good to see you again. Yes, good to see you again, too. Yeah, I just reached out to Dr. Salzman today because I'm actually visiting Duke next week. So yeah, hopefully I'll get to see him in person. Yeah, we'll see um, you Yeah, good. <laughs> so the the uh, my, my question is not that I'm just a little upset that you didn't teach this class when I was there. Okay. So <laughs> my right. question is why yeah. wasn't it taught then? Because it seems like a lot of the readings, and it seems like you've shifted the syllabus quite a bit. Um, a lot of the readings that, I remember some of them are definitely in there, but definitely like a lot more Mises in here, a lot more um, straight to the source type of stuff, a lot more Ayn Rand, a lot more um, Keynes, um, some Rothbard even, which I know I don't really think you touched when I was there. So I'm curious 
why uh, why the shift? And, well, uh, remind yeah. me, remind me, Mitchell, whether the courses you took with my, the other courses I taught, the PP&E Gateway and Introduction to Political Economy, or did you take this seminar? I took the Intro to Political Economy. Yes the capstone yes and the distributive justice well that explains what you just that explains what you just asked because those had some of these readings in it you're absolutely right but the reason these are heavily you know marx keynes mises hayek rand rothbard is this is the seminar just on capitalism so it had yes i you didn't take this seminar but but the readings i have here the lineup it is not substantially different from when i started in 2019. So I teach it every spring. And gotcha. uh, so I think you're just comparing two different syllabuses. So it's not like I changed the syllabuses from the other ones. It's just that this one is this one capitalism for and against only for freshmen, only for first year students is uh, is heavily all these names that hasn't changed much. That might be also why because I don't think is it was it always taught only for freshmen? Yes. Okay, so I never had the opportunity right. to take it then. Right. Yeah. I think I think you and I met uh, maybe your second year or the end of 2016. Your... Yes. 2016. My yeah, freshman okay. year. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, Richard, uh, I wanted to ask you, you said at the beginning about capitalism being durable. I just want to push back a little on that. Is that really the record of history? I mean, well, I, I use the word durable because it's kind of a stand in for sustainable. But I didn't want to use the word sustainable because that would be biasing the matrix they're supposed to fill out. But the other reason I use it is um, they learn through the readings, especially from the critics, the socialists, who will say, man, when is this thing going to die? We keep predicting its demise. We keep predicting its end. We hope that every new crisis is a reason to expect it to fall. And yet it's still... You know, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking, as they used to say about the what was the Timex watch. And um, the fact that the Soviet Union fell, that the Cold War was over again, they, it's not like the world embraced capitalism morally. But that if you look at the readings, that has an indelible mark on uh, the critics as much as the, the fans. Uh, again, on the idea, well, socialism is not durable. It it neither it either kills or impoverishes people or just collapses, and so that's the main reason I use the word durable. And you're also, I'm also kind of trying to make the argument of what you don't want to study something that's ephemeral. There's no sense studying something that's you know only going to be around a while. But it does say 300 years. I mean, 300 years is a long time. Now, you and I, and others in the room here, will say, well, do we really have pure capitalism anymore? It seems like that has not endured, and that's a, certainly a debatable point too. Um, but that's the main reason I use the word durable. That's fair. And Thank notice you. also, and notice also, the fir very first sentence says "social system," and most of them think of it as an economic system only. So that's me very upfront, kind of hinting that there's more to capitalism than just the economics and politics of it, that, that they're going to get something about the psychology of it and the cultural aspects of it and other things to it, much closer to the, much closer to the broader objectivist definition of the system as a social system, a broader concept for encompassing all political, economic, cultural, and psychological. Great. Uh, we have Atlas Society founder, David Kelly with his hand raised. David? Um, yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, 
Richard, when I saw you, <clears throat> at the beginning of your presentation that feminism was listed as one of the main, you know, lines of, of criticism of capitalism, I was saying that seems de minimis. I mean, it's kind of a, you uh -huh. know, small thing. But when when you got to that point in your syllabus, I realized it was more identity politics as such, uh -huh. uh, which includes feminism, uh, but also, you know, all kinds of other things. Racism and ethnicity, yes. That, right. That's what, so, yeah, it is, it is kind of a catch-all for, well, these particular groups are harmed by capitalism. Yeah. Uh, blacks or women, so they hate it. Uh, right. I and think, yeah, go ahead. There's an entire, um, uh, you know, cultural explanation, you know, I, you know, in terms of assumptions, collectivism, uh, the victim, you know, uh, psychology, victim mentality and so forth. Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. But I, I also wanted to ask you a much more general question. Um, you know, I've. I was a teacher in a previous life, and, you know, in some ways I'm still a teacher. Um, my experience has been people uh, in academia um, who have a job and are expected both to teach and to write, to produce research and to teach their classes. And I was talking with a friend of mine uh, just today about, you know, many many people seem to have you know one or the other is their primary goal uh-huh and you know some people love writing and teaching as a means to getting ideas for writing um some people love uh teaching and ideas are just ways of, of you know sharpening their their uh acts to be a better teacher i you strike me as someone who does both but i was really struck as you went through your syllabus, about all the care you take, you know, working out something for your students. And I just, so I'm just, just, just more of a comment, but I, if you could comment on, you know, what, what drives you to, you know, to create the, you know, these wonderful syllabi. That's a good question. I think actually in terms of my interest and, uh, being at a research institution, the emphasis is on no, not only research, although primarily research and publishing, and secondarily teaching. Uh, I do enjoy both, and I, I I know I feel that way because if I'm doing too much teaching, I feel a little bit uncomfortable that I'm away from my research and I'm not finishing that paper <laughs> I want to finish. But then also when I'm writing, you know, lonely, you know how lonely it can be, David, writing. Yeah, you're in a little bubble and everything. And then I want to get out and talk to people and teach students and everything. So I, I do go back and forth and they're like mutually reinforcing. I think the I have heard not only that I have a, a lot of reading and maybe too much. So I'm always conscious of cutting back if I can. My my weakness is I'll find some great new essay and I'll want to add it. And I, I haven't, I, I don't delete something else. So I do keep track of the page numbers per week to make sure they're not in excess of some number, but it could be cut back a lot. But I think the other thing is it, it every time I put the syllabus together and tweak it or change it a little bit, it's structuring my own knowledge in a, in a very helpful way. It's structuring my own. And I learn more and more when I'm teaching it. But yes, some of it is to make it more digestible by the students. I think I'm conscious of the fact that there's a lot of pages so the more I give them a structure that makes logical sense, 
and they can hang it and they all interrelate that the sheer volume doesn't overwhelm them. It's easier for them to see the structure of it. So if this was the same number of pages, but organized kind of haphazardly, it would be really taxing on them. So I think that's the other thing I do. I think the reason I have this level of detail and structure is I'm kind of conscious of the fact of not wanting to overwhelm them. Yeah. Well, thanks. And I'll, I'll just say, I, I wish I wish I'd had you as a teacher. No, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> thank yeah, my, you. I, I think my main challenge is to shrink it a little bit. So it's, it's a little, this needs to be cut probably 10%. <laughs> yeah. Maybe 15%. Yeah. Uh, great. Well, next, uh, I recognize the name from some of the top articles from our site. Will Thomas, good to see you. Good to see hey, you, Scott. Good to hey, see well. you, Richard. Great to see you. Good to see you, Kate, too. Um, I just uh, I, I noticed that you make a usually in your syllabus in each of the sections, there's a there's like a pro part and a con part, you know, uh -huh, uh, right. critique. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I but I did notice in the objectivism objectivism section yeah. there wasn't. And I wondered whether it was just hard uh -huh. to find a decent critique or you or you felt that uh, uh, it's obvious that so many different cul cultural forces are against objectivism that it's obvious it has critiques. I don't know, uh, but can you comment on that? Well, uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I'm glad you mentioned that okay. uh, because you're right. In the conservatism and libertarianism section, there's pros and cons, but not. You're right. It's not in objectivism. I have to think about that. <laughs> uh, you think it would be strengthened by that? I, I think it would. I'm trying to think of a representative one or two. Here we are adding to the syllabus again. But um, yeah, what would you say is the best source? A libertarian critique or a conservative one? Because we can get, I know you could get both. I don't know if a Marxist one would work. They tend not to engage at that level. It, the the critiques I've noticed are mostly from libertarians and conservatives. So, so um, yeah, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm going to think about this now because that's a really good question. Just and look for reviews of the Atlas Shrugged movie, and you'll, you know, anti Rand people are coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, um, Will I, Wilkerson. I, Will Wilkerson wrote an essay why I'm not an objectivist. Oh, okay. I'm going to write this down. I believe. Okay, and is he about 10, 15 years old, but he was certainly trained in objectivism. So, okay, I, I mean, I think his arguments are just that there are deeper issues that aren't dealt well by dealt with by objectivism. Yeah. So it's a fairly respectable critique. Okay, good. And I suppose I could include the David, you know, the review of Atlas in the National Review by Whitaker Chambers. But that's no. just but that's yeah. just that's just a trashing of the book. It's, that's it, a hit it would, job. It would be better to have uh, a treatment of the entire uh, as mo much of the philosophy as possible, not just a particular book. Right. There are many many things I I can put in my head to it. I will. Okay. Be, yeah. You know, more than I do about this. So, thank you for that, Will. I think it's a really good point. And if I could just uh, offer one good just question about yeah. uh, materials you're using. I yeah. notice you're using a system where your students can comment. Are you familiar with the uh, app uh, Perusal? No. Okay, because it allows you to post readings, and then uh -huh. the students can comment on it. 
Ah. And it rather auto grades. Of course, you can review all the auto grading. Oh, those okay. comments. It's yep. not quite the format you're using where they're writing something a little more substantive, but you might, it's, it's like P-E-R-U-S-A-L, uh, U-S-A-L. Yeah. Like, okay. Perusal. Per okay. Perusal. Good. Yeah. It's good like to perusal. Okay, that's, yeah. That's good to know. Great. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Good. Might be Josh? handy for you. I know uh, you have a question in the chat. I'll let. I don't yeah. know if you're going to ask that or something else. I, I'm going to. I'll. I'll put the no. Let in the chat. I'll leave in the chat just to see if there's a, there's a possibility of getting access to that syllabus or an older one. No, but I, I, I guess I wanted to begin with a comment and really just a thank you. Um, I, I work for the University of Michigan and for the medical school. I was just at one of their mandatory or pretty much mandatory DEI trainings. You can imagine. Uh -huh. but it be, no, no, but it began with a Saturday Night Live skit about a bunch of couples socially out to dinner avoiding hard conversations about race. And I, oh, and I, I, I've, I've, I've seen that skit. That's very funny. Yeah. yeah. It, was a fun, no, it was a funny skit, but I, I raised the point that it, on, and a bunch of medical school faculty and it seemed to be lost on them. I just want to really thank you for what you did. I raised the point. I said, this is a skit about people in a social situation out to dinner if I'm out with a bunch of friends and we're all liberals, we're all conservatives, we're all, we can all share the same point of view. And that's fine. At dinner, we don't have to make every argument on every point of view. But for our students, we owe them something like your syllabus. We owe them very different viewpoints. And and, and I just want to really thank you for bringing that many different viewpoints, you know, you know bringing, bringing Ibram Kendi and, and, and ran to the same syllabus. That's very rare. And that's incredible. Um, and for the students to wrestle with it, and I felt like my point was just absolutely lost when I tried to make that argument. This is a, yeah. This is not yeah. a social setting. This is not just share your politics with your friends who might all think alike. This is what school is about. And I was wondering, you made the one comment when you shared your syllabus that you know you shared syllabus with some other faculty member who said, "Well, why would you have a four part of capitalism? Shouldn't it all just be against?" <laughs> Did that early yeah. on? But, yeah. Um, no. How hard is that to like get such a such a so many different viewpoints in, into one. It's really impressive. And, and I thank you for how strongly considered it, echoing what David said earlier. Well, thank you, Josh. And, and glad I'm glad to share the syllabus. We'll arrange it through Scott and uh, others. The, the syllabus is, uh, the, the kind of procedure these days is, uh, there are syllabus banks, companies, ha uh, uh, universities um, have these banks. And, you know, many of them are on the sites of the professors themselves. So I don't, I don't know that people don't see them. They, they, publicly, they do. I'll tell you something that a couple of uh, reactions to what you just said. My experience is actually that because it's roughly half and half, the students coming in uh, are not uh, largely pro-capitalist. If they are, they're maybe conservatives. There may be a handful of libertarians, very few objectivists. So actually, the way it feels to them, this will sound weird because you just saw the syllabus. To them, it seems too pro-capitalist. Because they have, half, I, wow! It they, they, it doesn't the way they I, the reactions I get it sounds like they're saying it's too pro capitalist, but I think that's because they come in with so few pro capitalist perspectives that they've ever read, so it's kind of a shocker to some of them. Now I have to tell you also that sometimes I will try in the very beginning. I don't want to really uh, be colored by what they say and and be biased, but I'll ask them why they're taking the seminar. I won't ask them whether they lean in a direction or not, but I'll just ask them, you know, what they're interested in the seminar. So I can get some feedback and it, it ranges from, 
Uh, I'm anti-capitalist and I haven't heard any good arguments for it. So I would just want to check those out. Two, I'm lean toward capitalism, but I'm kind of suspicious because it's irreligious. And I'm just curious whether, you know, the Marxist arguments are why they persist or why they're formidable or something like that. Uh, I've had people say I'm I'm from China and I've never heard a case from capitalism. The, there's there's uh, Asian Oriental students who take it and they've never there many from China speak perfectly fluent English. And they will literally say, I've never heard a case for capitalism. So I had to take this. I, I wanted to take this. Um, I would say two thirds of them are two thirds of them are completely uh, neutral in the sense of they have no idea. And those are probably the more interesting ones They they come in and they're they literally will say, I don't know. I think it's an important topic, but I don't know. You know, I don't lean in one direction or another. Can you talk a little bit about the debate discussion aspect? Does it get heated? Uh, has it changed over time? Yeah, that's a good question. The dynamics of the 18 are, uh, it matters who shows up. Like one year, about three years ago, six out of the 18 were libertarians. And they just dominated the discussion. So I, and and almost intimidated the other ones into like not daring to come out for socialism or anti-capitalism. So some of it is managerial in the sense that I have to make sure that all voices get heard. And, uh, but that's rare. It's usually this mix that I just described. Now, the other thing that happens is in the first couple of weeks, they talk to me, which is really not ideal. In other words, we're in a circle, right? And when the students want to say something, they'll address it to me. And what I'm trying to get them to do is address it to each other. To, to start talking and arguing with each other. And that and that happens about the third, fourth week into it with some maneuvering and uh, suggestions on my part. You know, someone will say something and they'll say it to me and I'll say, does anyone want to respond to what John just said? Or anyone does anyone disagree with what John just said? Then they just, then they start talking to each other. And that that dynamic gets very good. Or the other thing is those commentaries they have to write ahead of time online before they go in. I encourage them to start reading each other's comments because I read them all as a professor. But I say to them, after you write your comments, you might want to poke around and see what the other students said in their comments. And then finally, the dynamic that really develops at the end, like in the last third of the seminar, which is very fun, is the students start, and they're very much attuned to this more than I am, the students start categorizing each other. Uh, so, you know, if Sally leans left and Joe re leans right toward capitalism, Sally and Joe, you know, soon, soon learn that. And they'll, they'll sometimes pitch their arguments toward each other for that reason. And then, of course, the rest of the seminar learns that. But I try to get them away from the idea of, I try to get them on the idea of read the ideas and see whether you agree with them or not. Uh, don't, you know, do performative things trying to, you know, uh, outrival or best their colleagues. And they're mostly pretty good about that. The, the thing that's hardest for freshmen to do is to be text-based. So you see these readings and they really have to be trained to come in in a seminar as much as possible. It's very difficult mm -hmm. to do. And, and when they're commenting, say things like, Mises points out on page 52, you know, that the psychology of capitalism is this. That is something, as you know, David, a senior would be much better at, or a graduate student would be much better at. Whereas the freshmen aren't, they, they'll read the material, but they're not good at uh, 
they haven't been trained yet and they're not good at making their comments in relationship to the text and the material. They'll often just use it as a springboard to start talking about um, other things. And, and sometimes you can't tell whether that's because they're just not rigorous in their reading and commenting or whether it's because they didn't read the material. Great. David, you have your hand raised? Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, make another pedagogical point. Richard, I think the, the idea of getting students to talk directly to each other rather than to you as the god in the room um, is hugely important. I always, you know, it took me a long time to realize that when I was teaching. But, you know, when they talk to each other, when they when they if they're talking to you, it's like talking to their parent. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're yeah. in a different level altogether. Yeah. yeah. That's not real. They're going to graduate and go out into the real world. Well, they have to actually talk to other people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Who yeah. are their equals, the peers, sometimes their bosses. But. Right. Um, I used to tell people, don't write for me. Right. Write for your reader because you graduate. If you ever write something again, it's not going to be a friendly teacher, a, a, a parental teacher who cares about you. It's going to be a hard boss uh, or your peers. Right. I just think that that's a psychological point. But, uh, you know, I I just wanted to make it because it's, it's so important pedagogically. Yeah, the other thing I've heard uh, repeatedly uh, have, having to do with self-censorship, shyness, uh, feeling intimidated. Every time I ask the students uh, whether they feel free to speak on campus or in seminars or in class, and in seminars, it's much more intimate. Uh, first of all, you don't speak up much in lectures anyway. So you're in a seminar and you're required to speak up. And uh, every time I ask them whether they feel you know more or less comfortable in front of professors versus other students, they always say other students, which surprises me. I, I, going into academia 13 years ago, I thought, I had this impression that what students were afraid of is teachers, professors, a, a, expounding a view that the professor didn't agree with. And it could go either way. The Marxist student might be worried as much as the capitalist. And of course, there's this issue of authority and they're grading, they're, they're grading you. But actually, most students tell me if they self-censor and, and bite their lip, it's because they're worried that other students will ostracize them. Oh, my God. Yes. And that's very weird. It's very unfortunate. because, And then here I am in a seminar and trying to encourage them to speak up <laughs> and not and not worry about that. Right. You know, matter. No matter. And and, uh, you know, in this particular seminar I'm doing now, there is a socialist Marxist leaning student. And she's very bright and she's very articulate. And some of the others are just like back on their heels and they're not, not quite work, work sure what to say, but she's very good. And that's a very helpful thing to yeah. have, to have uh, all sides uh, articulate if they can be. Um, good. Thanks. Yeah. So what role do you play when you have someone like that, that's, uh, you know, spitfire for the other side? Well, I, I, when I'm doing the, and it's a long two and a half hours, right? when I'm doing the seminar, I'm, I'm kind of, oh, by the way, I use the, uh, David, you know, the Liberty Fund method of uh, holding a queue of a line of people. It, it's a very structured talk in the sense of the, the topic will come up. 
I'll, sometimes I'll ask the student what's particular reading they want to discuss. So I don't mandate that they talk about Mises versus, you know, Hayek versus whatever. So, so someone will launch in. And, uh, and then what I'll say to them is, uh, if you want to make a comment on the person who just commented or on this topic, just raise your hand and I'll keep a cue. I'll keep a, a lineup on a pad of paper. And that makes everything much more orderly. So they're not interrupting as much at all. They're not interrupting each other. They know they're going to get their turn when it comes. Yeah. Uh, if in the interim, five minutes or so, somebody else made the point that they were going to make, all they have to do is say, I'll pass. So it 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 allows for a much more efficient uh, handling of the questions. They're not all talking over each other or you know someone feeling like they're not being heard. Uh, students, of course, will develop a reputation for making, you know, some students will make short, pithy points. In other words, others will monologue for a long time and you'll get the eye rolling and, and things like that. So I have to, have to manage that a little bit. But uh, generally, Scott, what I do is if I feel on a particular topic, if I feel like the thing is moving entirely to anti-capitalist stuff um, and I'm not seeing hands up on the other side, I will inject pro-capitalist stuff. And then if I say the thing re moving toward, wow, these are all like pro-capitalist comments and everything's hunky-dory and this system is wonderful i'll just jive, dive in and say well why can't the minimum wage be and, and you'll laugh if you saw me doing this you'd laugh because you know who i am and i start making socialist arguments or anti-capitalist arguments just to get the thing it's almost like a keel it balance of power yeah it's like a kind of a keel yeah and i say wow we're lifting to, we're listening to the port side i need to move this a little bit this way and uh the good thing about that is the students hear me half the time I'm saying pro-capitalist stuff and half the time I'm saying anti-capitalist stuff. Well, not quite half the time, but you see the idea. <laughs> I'm trying to counterbalance if it's, if it's going in that direction, you know, for too long a, a time, like 20 minutes or so. One of the great, one of the great discussions we had today was we brought up the minimum, uh, someone brought up the minimum wage. We were talking about Keynes. We were talking about mass unemployment. And then, you know, a couple of times I'll throw something up on the board, but it's not really a lecture. So I'll show them supply demand curves and realize, you know, that the wage rate is too high and that that's why there's unemployment. So for 20 minutes, they all went off on the minimum wage. Should we have a minimum wage? Should it be based on a living wage or not? Should it be $15 an hour? You know, and at one point I said, what do you mean 15? Why can't it be $50 an hour? And they're all like stopping their tracks. I said, no, why not 100 if we're going to be totally humane about this and caring about the worker? And uh, wow, that's too high. And it's caused really high unemployment. And but once you go down that route, uh, we're just haggling over what the number will be. But you've already agreed to, you know, intervene in this contract and force people to pay a price. So isn't that the real <clears throat> tipping point? It, those kind of discussions are really fun. Uh, or today when I said, I've done this before, how, how would you expect them to answer? I'll say, you realize if you tell an employer that he has to pay $15 an hour and the worker's only worth five, that they're just not going to get hired. And the students nod and they're like, yes. And I said, so why don't you just make them hire the worker? Why don't you just make the employer force them to hire the worker so they'll actually get the wage? And they all stop and none of them will say yes. And I asked him why. I said, if you're willing to dictate the rate, why can't you go to the next step and dictate that they actually hire the person? They're almost always in the middle of the road. They'll all, they'll almost always say, well, that goes a bit too far. But see, they've already accepted the principle uh, that government should force this uh, price. 
but they're not willing to, again they're not willing to add to the authoritarianism of it if you will um, by the fact that the employee is not going to get hired at all I have a question related to that, but I do want to give Alex Abder a chance to get in here. Thanks for joining us. You'll have to unmute yourself. Very good. Yes. Uh, I apologize. It is Alexander. I just, I rushed to get in. I was a little late. Okay. Um, uh, I'm rather young and I'm very, uh, thank you. I'm rather young. I'm 26, but I, I, uh, was introduced to Ayn Rand in a in a slight way, and I came across the website. And uh, I'm very interested to learn more about this stuff. My main question was: uh, Should if I were to attempt to learn about this, would you suggest going through the reading list that you had for your students from the start to the end? Or should I read Atlas Shrugged and some of Ayn Rand's works beforehand to really just get like a good grasp on it? Like, how should I really pursue it? I think if you're interested in um, Ayn Rand's philosophy and ideas, the second route is much better. The start with the first thing is whether you like fiction more or less than nonfiction. Unfortunately, she has both. I tended to start with the nonfiction, so I read The Virtue of Selfishness and then Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal first. So the first one is on ethics. That was written in, I think, 64. Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal was written in 66. Those are very good books for nonfiction, at least starting with. But if you're more interested in the fiction, I would start with The Fountainhead. She's got three or four main nonfiction, excuse me, fiction, and Atlas is the longest, the Fountainhead's in the middle, and another one, We the Living, is a bit shorter, but The Fountainhead, I would recommend starting with that. The syllabus I showed tonight, that would be for an intensive study of capitalism, a mainly only capitalism from the pro-con standpoint. It, and as you can see, some of the essays and some of the readings are the objectivist Ayn Rand perspective on capitalism. But uh, no, I would in terms of learning her view of capitalism, I wouldn't go through it this way in this um syllabus i'd go directly to her works those three or four works david do you have a different i want to defer to david here for different recommendation there no i would recommend it if if fiction is uh your your preferred media um i would agree on the fountainhead i would add anthem that is a very short um um kind of just in the dystopian um yeah, you know, genre, and but it's very short and very evocative, and it sounds all the major themes. But the Fountainhead is the most developed um, in personal terms. Uh, <clears throat> I would just add for uh, reading nonfiction, the Atlas Society has a uh, a pocket guide on what is objectivism that would be a useful introduction, and you know conveys all the main all the main theories um and it it kind of points you it will kind of point you toward the things you're most interested in there is also a um alexander there's also the atlas society has done a pocket guide to capitalism so there's a, there's at least seven or eight different pocket guides easy to read brief uh succinct and as david said there's one on objectivism 
broadly, but there's also one that I wrote on capitalism. So uh, very affordable. I think it's four ninety five or less. Um, those are those are distributed. Scott knows this. Those are distributed. Those pocket guides at usually student conferences, students for liberty or young Americans for liberty or various other conferences. When right. Atlas Society has a sponsors a table, you know, at these uh, student conferences, those uh, pocket guides are very popular. And if you email me, Scott at atlassociety.org, you know, being under 30, we can probably get you at least one or two anyway. So, um, but um, Richard, with uh, the time we have, I just, uh, is, isn't is the critique of, of Mark's section itself a sign of his influence? Do you mean, am I signaling that he still matters? Well, I mean, that just objectively that, that he does, yeah. That, yeah, I, I mean, think so. I think so. The uh, the idea of um, the rise of, say, or the interest that young people have, it's inexplicable to me, but in people like uh, Bernie Sanders or AOC or others who are definitively in a Democrat socialist uh, part of the spectrum, uh, that socialism still, you know, has appeal one of the things I show them, by the way, the exhibits I show up front, remember I mentioned one of them was a poll. One of the things that's really grabbed them is I have three or four polls just from the last five or six years showing that young students prefer socialism to capitalism. So, I mean, that alone is a head shaker. And then, and then when you put uh, age, uh, not yeah, income level, but also uh, that it differs, that older people lean more toward favoring capitalism over socialism. But here are younger people looking at these polls. And of course, they can decide for themselves whether they lean one way or another. But th th those are reasons I give to say, well, this is obviously worth studying socialism. And although Marxism is revolutionary socialism, I do give them a little bit in the, between these readings on what's called evolutionary socialism, which was really something the Brits came up with. The Fabian socialists, George Bernard Shaw and others, including Keynes, by the way. So their view was, we don't want to overthrow capitalism. We just want people to vote for it. And of course, Britain did nationalize a whole bunch of things after the war. So uh, so that those are the various ways I get the students to realize that they should be reading Marx. Now, the other thing is I teach them a little bit briefly about cultural Marxism. Now, this is more current. So the cult. So once they learn that Marx's view was capital and labor are at each other's throats and it's a zero-sum game, I say, well, cultural Marxism, Marxism is not dead because now cultural Marxism has women and men at each other's throat, blacks and whites at each other's throat, this generation versus the next, uh, environmentalism at each other's throats. So the pitch here is to understand the Marxist critique of capitalism, even though it sounds like very old stuff, 1848, 1875, that it has current day credence and meaning, if if only in another context. Um, but even the democratic socialism thing themselves, they realize, well, there's something wrong with socialism, so we need to sanitize it with a vote. Uh, none of them are willing to sign on to the brutal you know, the Soviet experiment, or they'll call it not socialism, not real socialism. But they feel somehow that it's okay if it's democratic socialism, if we've all consented to this uh, awful system. 
they for some reason never sign on to democratic fascism, but they're they're perfectly okay with democratic <laughs> democratic socialism. Great, uh, Robert, you had your hand up. Thanks. Unmute yourself. Oh, oh John, I, 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 we'll get to you, John, as well. Oh, there's Robert. Oh, the Robert Paul. Yeah. Hi, Rob. Hi, how's it going? Yeah. Hey. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the um the minimum wage things. Yeah. I've actually yeah. thought about that. Like uh like that thought of the experiment. Like, oh yeah, let's see, you make it like a hundred dollars an hour. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think what it, what would happen uh, is people who make minimum wage currently they they would probably just like work less hours, right? Like instead of forty hours, you put right. just work twenty, right? Right. And I was thinking like that that actually could become a reality in our world if, if people would just buy less stuff, right? Like if people uh -huh. were not like eating at right. restaurants all the time, like buy all this stuff, like people really, it's kind of like the sales <laughs> law thing, right? Like the supply is demand, right? So yep. it's really like the reason like why these minimum wage for have to work all the time, right? It's simply because we're like buying so much stuff, right? So I think really if you're like the on the, yeah, the against side of capitalism, I think a lot of them are kind of hypocritical, right? Because like they're like also like can be very consumerist, like go out to eat all the time, buy lots of stuff. So uh yeah. So yeah, I think that it's, I think that's an interesting thing you could touch on in your class is uh is that that, that thought experiment, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean today when it came up, Rob, uh the left-leaning students who were arguing for not only the minimum wage, but higher minimum minimum wage. Um, I asked them at one point, now here he would be me pushing back, right? Because one of the conservatives said there should be no minimum wage. And and the left, the left-leaning students were just appalled appalled by this so i asked the left-leaning students what if there was no minimum wage mandate at all it was just about what would happen to wages and the left-leaning students said they would basically go to zero they think they think the only reason wages are what they are is because the government's dictating a minimum wage so then so i would ask them i said so what do you think ba wages are based on is it based on you know possibly the productivity of the worker and whether they're valuable to the employer or not they just don't think that way or they would say there should be a living wage, you know, and I said, well, doesn't that mean that's based on your cost of living and like how many kids you have and what your lifestyle is? Why should the why should the employer care about that? The employer cares about you showing up at work nine to five, what you do outside your work hours, how how costly your living standards are. Why should that be of concern to the uh, employer? So that gets them thinking a little bit. Well, yeah, I, I think I think it's still seven twenty five right now. I think it's yeah, the other so, yeah. that people that people actually make that low. I mean, like most like like things that I've seen that at stores like oh we're hiring like twelve. I've never seen anyone advertise like oh we're, we'll pay you like eight dollars an hour. And I feel like it's pretty rare. Right, it's but the state the states themselves half the states this year raised their so so there's state level minimum wages as well. And if they're above if they're above the federal rate, which most of them are, you you are mandated to pay that. So, like in Seattle or something, it's fifteen or eighteen dollars. So, yeah, that, I said it's like half. Said like half the states have it. I think that's that's about right. Yeah, yeah, about twenty two. Now, the, uh, you reminded me of something else also because one of the fascinating things you you know this, Rob, because you know what's in the manifesto. The manifest, the Communist Manifesto, right in the middle of it, even though it's a document calling for revolution. Remember, it ends with "Workers of the World Unite." and basically uh, take over the capitalists and expropriate the expropriators. That's the language. So it's a very violent message. But right in the middle of the uh, Communist Manifesto is t the 10 famous planks. Uh, and they're, and I, I say to the students, now look at these planks. One of them says there should be a central bank. One of them says there should be a graduated income tax. One of them says the government should take over the schools and be public schools. Now, when you think about that, those are reforms uh, they're bad reforms, but they're reforms of the capitalist system. 
they're not an overthrow of the capitalist system. And the other thing the students realize is, oh my gosh, seven or eight of the planks have already been adopted under the welfare state. So that's another, somebody asked whether, you know, they ask about why are we studying Marx? They see right in the manifesto that it had the influence not only of causing things like the Soviet Union and uh, Mao's Red China, but of enormously influencing the welfare state because we've adopted, most countries, Britain and elsewhere, the social welfare states have adopted seven out of the eight planks. And um, that is an eye-opener to most students. They do not realize where those ideas came from. I wanted to make sure to get to John. He uh, had his hand raised manually. Uh, So uh, (laughs) go ahead, John. Can you hear me okay? I can, John, yes. Oh, good, okay. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, hey, Professor Salzman, I appreciate it. This is a terrific discussion. Uh, good, I love your good. I love your syllabus. Good. Um, I'd act, you know I'm actually a retired economist. I taught at a UNC Chapel ah. Hill. There. Oh, you're kidding? That's yeah. eight, that's eight minutes away from me. I know. I know it is. And um, when did you to, when did you I, when did you teach, John? Well, it was uh I I left there about 2012. Okay. And I actually talked to uh, Mike Munger. Yeah, I work. Is he still the chair? He, de- he definitely is, and his office is right next to mine. Oh, we right, were, right. Yeah. I'd actually talked to him uh, several years ago, a little yeah. bit after 2012, about yeah. teaching a course on the uh, moral and economic defense of uh, capitalism. Right. And so that everybody understood where I was coming from. Right. And, and you know, I didn't get labeled, you know, I, yeah. you, you knew what I was. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh as an i i have a question for you but uh, i taught um when i taught my honors class at unc i would incorporate um kind of an addendum of reading the communist manifesto and also in in conjunction with uh frederick bastiat yes the law yes you know, because they're about the same size they're published about the same time yeah yeah and, and um and most and a lot of these honor students had already read the, the communist manifesto yeah but they hadn't read the law. And anyway, we had a, you know, I went over those planks also, those 10 last planks. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the conservatives, you know, they, they had already, you know, we've adopted those already. You know, right. For the right, most part. Right. Anyway, that was, that was fascinating. But I, I just wondered if, um, if you were able to incorporate, you, you've talked about, you know, minimum wage and, and, you know, wage determination and all that. If you were able to incorporate some of the great principles in economics, and that, you know, even, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the law of one price with wage termination, uh, you know, when I explain it uh, in, in, in non-economic jargon, you know, you, you tend to, you know, wages tend to equal what you contribute to the final product. Yeah. And then, it, you know, then the question is, you know, is that fair? <laughs> you know, yeah, the, you get paid the, what you contribute. The answer to this question is most of that kind of more technical economic stuff, price theory, law of one price, the profit rate is uh, left to my introduction to political economy. So I teach separately. I teach a course called Introduction to Political Economy. It's not a seminar. It's me up on stage with PowerPoints and graphs and stuff to 75 to 100 students. This particular seminar, I don't think they could take that. Uh, first of all, I don't want the thing to be just about economics because I'm trying to suggest to them that capitalism is economics and politics and philosophy and psychology. But also they're freshmen and they haven't even named a major yet, which is kind of interesting. The majors that they they select a major second semester of sophomore year. So they're still like a year and a half away from that. So uh, it, I understand what you're saying, John. It's good material. That's kind of stuff is, 
definitely part of economics, but it's not in this seminar for those reasons. No, I understand that, and I'm not trying to criticize anything. I'm just, I just, I'm just wondering. Oh, yeah, about no, that. that's. I'm just wondering about that because you know, you can definitely defend, you know, some of the economics. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of capitalism. Yeah. But um, great. You really but the, enjoyed but the, it. Though. Really yeah. enjoyed it, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, You're John. Welcome. Um, You're welcome, John. Yeah, uh, Richard. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, you know, it was great. Thanks to everyone who participated. These conversations are always fun. Um, you know, we're very grateful to have him as well as our senior scholars here at the Atlas Society, several of whom are here. Uh, if you're looking for other ways to get involved with our work, uh, please check out the Atlas Society or atlassociety.org slash events. If you'd like to be involved in making sure we can continue to do all that we do at the Atlas Society, please consider giving a tax deductible donation at atlassociety.org slash donate. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.